Who will be saved? The New Testament often talks about people being saved. Meaning, in the short term, saved from their slavery to sin. And in the long term, saved from God's wrath. Saved from eternal punishment in hell. But who will be saved? Considering what's at stake, it's a pretty important question. If you ask the person in the street, they might say, well, if there is a God, he'll save good people. And what they mean by good people usually turns out to be people just like them. But what does Jesus say? This morning we have a chance to hear what Jesus says on this question. We're going to turn back this morning to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. And the Pew Bible, that's page 1052. Luke 18, we'll pick up at verse 9 and we'll follow the text through to verse 30 this morning. It'll be helpful for you to have your Bibles open and keep them open so you can follow along. In this passage, Jesus gives a three-part answer to the question, who will be saved? Those who know their need for mercy. Those who come to Jesus like a Middle Eastern child. Those who let go of their other gods. So first, who will be saved? Those who know their need for mercy. In verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 9 tells us who Jesus has in mind when he tells this story. Those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Righteousness means in the right. In the Bible it means to be in right standing with God. To be accepted and counted worthy by God. Jesus is talking to people who are confident they are accepted by God. And their confidence comes from comparing themselves to other people. They look down on everybody else. Last Sunday night we looked at Psalm 131. These people have what Psalm 131 calls haughty eyes, looking down on everybody else. But with this little story, Jesus wants to challenge these confident people. He wants them to rethink their idea of what makes a person righteous in God's eyes. 
And so he introduces these two characters in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We hear the words Pharisee and tax collector, and if we've been coming to church for a while, they spark off some understanding in our minds. We know that Pharisees are people who tend to be shown in a negative light in the New Testament. They're often the bad guys. Not always, but often. They're often negative toward Jesus. And very often tax collectors appear in a positive light. They're responsive to Jesus a lot of the time. But if we're going to get the force of Jesus' story, we have to realize what his first audience would have thought when they hear the words Pharisee and tax collector. They would have thought pretty much the opposite of what we think. The Pharisees were known as the religious giants of the day. Even if the average Jew didn't like the Pharisees very much, they were assumed to be in God's good books. If God was pleased with anybody, he was pleased with the Pharisees. That was the assumption. On the other hand, tax collectors were possibly the most hated group in Israel. They were not only greedy and untrustworthy, they had sold out to the enemy. They were collecting taxes for the Romans. So Jesus starts his little story, and his audience knows what to expect. God will be pleased with the Pharisee, and he'll tell the tax collector to get lost. Verse 11 says, The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. It's hard to be sure how to translate this. The NIV footnote gives us an alternative. He prayed to himself. Another option is he prayed by himself. In other words, he stood apart from everybody else. I suspect the third option is probably the best. This Pharisee is standing in the temple courtyard. He considers himself superior to everybody else. And he doesn't want to be contaminated by rubbing shoulders with unrighteous people who are in the courtyard. So he stands by himself. But what he produces is a curious kind of prayer. Is it really a prayer at all? Look again in verse 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. In effect, his prayer is, I thank you, God, that I'm such a great guy. The Old Testament taught that every human being born into this world is stained by sin. We share the same sinful condition. We had a reading earlier from Psalm 51. David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But this Pharisee doesn't seem to agree. He names the kind of people he thinks are sinful, including the tax collector he can see across the courtyard. It's probably quite upsetting to the Pharisee that people like the tax collector are even allowed into the temple courtyard. Even in this special place, the Pharisee finds he can't avoid sinners. But he continues his prayer 
reminding God that he really does go the extra mile. The Old Testament law called for fasting one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Most Pharisees fasted 12 days a year. But this one fasts twice a week. Jews often debated what kinds of things should be tithed. This guy gives a tithe of everything, just to make sure. God's lucky to have him on the team. Or so the Pharisee thinks. But in reality, the Pharisee has missed something the temple was designed to teach him. No one except the high priest can go into the inner room of the temple. And then only once a year. And then only carrying blood. Everybody else is shut out in the courtyard. They're unworthy to enter God's presence. Whatever this Pharisee thinks about himself, whatever other people think of him, the fact that he's out in the courtyard tells the Pharisee what God thinks about him. He's unrighteous. He's unworthy. He's standing in the same courtyard as the tax collector he looks down on. He's in the same position before God as the tax collector. If Jesus' story was being filmed, at this point the camera would pan across the courtyard. We find the tax collector also standing at a distance. But this is for a very different reason than the Pharisee. The Pharisee thought he was too good to mix with the other worshippers. The tax collector feels he's not worthy to mix with them. His head is bowed in shame. We're told he beats his breast. Commentators tell us that was what people did in times of acute distress. The tax collector has no achievements to tell God about. He doesn't compare himself to other people. What good would that do him? All he can do is admit his unworthiness and ask for mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The word translated mercy here is not the usual word for mercy. In fact, it's a word that only occurs one other time in the New Testament. And it tells us this tax collector is thinking much more carefully than the Pharisee about what goes on at the temple. The only other time this word occurs in the New Testament is over in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, 17 is talking about Jesus. And it says, He had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The word translated make atonement in Hebrews is translated here as have mercy. That tells us the tax collector is asking God for a specific kind of mercy. The temple courtyard was where the daily animal sacrifices were offered. Sacrifices that pointed to human guilt and sin. That's why the animals were being slaughtered every day. To teach people that their sin made God angry. It made them worthy of death. It put them in need of a substitute to die in their place. 
to turn away God's wrath from them, to atone for their sin. The Pharisee was oblivious to what the temple was designed to teach him. He'd missed the significance of being shut out of God's presence in the temple. He'd missed the point of the animals being sacrificed on the altar. But the tax collector understands. And so he prays, not just a general God have mercy on me, but God, will you show your mercy by providing a sacrifice for me? I know my sin. The weight of it is crushing me. I know I'm lost without a sacrifice that will turn away your anger and make atonement for my sin. The tax collector and the Pharisee are equally in need of God's mercy. The difference between them is the tax collector recognizes it and the Pharisee doesn't. Remember how the crowd are thinking of these two men. Pharisee, holy man, accepted by God. Tax collector, sinner, rejected by God. But look what Jesus says in verse 14. I tell you that this man, that's the tax collector, rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Sometimes as Christians we oversimplify the truth. The truth is simple, but we can oversimplify it. We tell people, come to Jesus and God will accept you. We put things that way because we want people to believe. We want churches to grow. But then we wonder why people don't seem interested. Or if they do come to Jesus, we wonder why they soon lose interest. One of the reasons might be that we've oversimplified the truth. What Jesus has done is not big news unless we realize why he needed to do it. So before we tell people to come to Jesus, we need to help them see why we need to come to Jesus. We need to come because we are damned without him. We need to come because we are unworthy sinners. We need to come because we need God's mercy. If we don't understand our sin, if we don't see how it separates us from God, if we're not fairly crushed under the weight of our sin, then Jesus' sacrifice is going to seem like no big deal to us. And if we do make some sort of profession of faith in Jesus, we'll probably turn out like this Pharisee, proud of the little things that we do for God, proud of what we know, proud of our moral lifestyle, our charitable giving convinced that those things really do make us just a little bit better than other people, or at least good enough for God to accept us. Religious people who've never grasped their need for God's mercy are just the same as this Pharisee, and just as lost and unrighteous in God's eyes. The tax collector heard what God was teaching through the temple and its rituals. 
Apparently, he even realized that the animals on the altar were illustrations. They weren't the real thing. So he prays for the real thing. He prays for a sacrifice that really could make atonement for his sin. And as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ was that sacrifice. He was the reality the bulls and the lambs and the goats were pointing to. This man standing here teaching the crowds would very soon go to Jerusalem and die for the crowds. Jesus was the answer to the tax collector's prayer. He's the answer to the prayer of everyone today who recognizes their sin. So if you're confident of your own righteousness this morning, if you've never felt the reality and the weight of your sinfulness, ask God to show it to you. That would be a kind thing for God to do. It's better to be humbled under the weight of your sin and seek God's mercy than to go home self-assured and unforgiven. Then if you're a Christian who's drifting into confidence in your own righteousness, ask God to remind you that you are really the worst of sinners. That's how the great apostle Paul spoke about himself. When we can see the depths of our own sin, we'll be reminded how wonderful it is to be forgiven. Who will be saved? Those who know their need for mercy. In verses 15 to 17, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach some more on this. Who will be saved? Those who come to Jesus like a Middle Eastern child. Look at verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Parents wanted Jesus to touch their babies so the babies would receive a blessing. These people may not have fully understood who Jesus was, but they know that there's something special about him. So why would the disciples rebuke these parents? The answer lies in the way children were seen in this time and culture. They were seen as having possibly value in the future, but so long as they're not adults, they're pretty much without value. They're the least as far as society was concerned. That was the prevailing cultural view. And so the disciples are not really doing anything unusual. They're acting according to their culture. They know that Jesus' time is limited. And as far as they're concerned, they're protecting him from having his time wasted by insignificant things like children. The disciples really are acting as Jesus' handlers here. They know that there's a ruler waiting to see Jesus. We'll meet him in a few moments. So the disciples need to free Jesus up to meet that much more important person. 
But Jesus is not going to be handled. He does not share the views of the disciples or the culture around him. Not only is he happy to give time to the children, he uses the opportunity to teach the disciples more about the kind of person who will be saved. In the second half of verse 16, he says, The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. If we were to take those words out of context, we might think Jesus is saying all children go to heaven. But if we continue reading into verse 17, we can see that Jesus is making a different point. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus is describing the kind of person who will be saved. Those who receive the kingdom of God like a little child. What does it mean to receive the kingdom like a little child? Well, in our culture, to be childlike usually means one of two things. It could mean to be fairly clueless, so naive or gullible. Or it could mean filled with wonder, open to the infinite possibilities of life. In the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, to be childlike did not mean either of those two things. It meant, as we've just seen, to be unimportant, without any clout, with no claim on people's attention. It meant to be helpless and vulnerable. So when Jesus says we need to be childlike to enter God's kingdom, he means we have to give up our claims to status and worthiness and importance. We have to recognize that we stand before the all-holy, almighty creator of the universe with nothing to impress him. We have no clout or strength that's worthy of his attention or his goodwill. We stand before him like a Middle Eastern child, helpless and vulnerable. That's hard for us. We find ourselves saying, yes, but what about my good life? What about my effort? Doesn't it count for anything? We find ourselves sounding more and more like the Pharisee we've just seen at the temple, asserting our worthiness, listing our efforts, confident that what we've done has to count for something with God. The book of Isaiah says all our righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight. That doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean God is angry when we do good things. It simply means our good deeds are worthless when it comes to earning God's favor. The only way into God's kingdom is to come like a Middle Eastern child. Abandoning all our claims that we deserve God's acceptance. And the beautiful thing is, when we come that way, we find the same Savior that we see here in Luke chapter 18. The Savior who welcomes the helpless. We find the Savior who says, there's nothing you can do but I've done it for you. 
If you had a million years, you couldn't overcome your sin and please God. But I've done it for you. On the cross, I offered my perfect life as a substitute for your sinful one. The book of Hebrews says Jesus offered himself unblemished to God. None of us can do that. Even the very best stuff that we do is still tainted with our sin, our selfish motives. So as long as we try to keep coming with our credentials in our hand, we'll stay outside God's kingdom. We have no credentials to bring. And insisting that we have some credentials is really a form of rebellion. It's pride. But if we will humble ourselves and come like a Middle Eastern child, we'll find a welcome. There's an old hymn that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That sums up the attitude Jesus is talking about here. Who will be saved? Jesus has more to say. Those who let go of their other gods. In verses 18 to 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Luke has not indicated any change of scene since the start of our passage. So we're to assume this ruler has heard Jesus' story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. He's heard Jesus' words about receiving the kingdom like a little child. And now he asks the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In this passage, inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom, being justified before God and being saved are all different ways of saying the same thing. I don't think this ruler is talking about doing something to earn eternal life. We can tell that by the way Jesus answers him. The ruler's question is really, how can I be sure I will be saved? How can I be sure that when this life is over, I will enter eternal life? Now, because we are reading his words and not hearing them, we can't tell how he asked his question. In other words, we don't know if his tone was desperate or if it was pleading or confident. But again, Jesus' response to the man gives us a big clue as to the man's tone. We know that he's seen by society as an important person. He's a ruler. No doubt he's used to being deferred to and catered to. And he seems to be using the same approach with Jesus. So he's buttering Jesus up. He's trying to flatter him. And he's doing it so that Jesus will tell him what he wants to hear. Good teacher. Very impressive words. 
Good story about that proud Pharisee. And I love how you care for little children. Now, what about me? As a ruler, what's my standing with regard to God? He seems to think that all Jesus has said so far doesn't apply to him. But Jesus responds to this ruler with a bit of a no-nonsense answer. In verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. The way Jesus answers this man tells us a lot about the man's attitude. Jesus is saying, in essence, stop trying to flatter me so I'll tell you you're a great guy. Obey God. If this man was looking for a pat on the back, Jesus is not going to give it to him. He just points him back to the Old Testament commandments. And the ruler is delighted when he hears this. All these I have kept since I was a boy. He thinks, great, that wasn't so hard. I've avoided the big, obvious, outward sins, murder, adultery. So I've made it. I'm okay. Maybe that's how some of us think about sin. If we avoid the obvious stuff, we're okay. But Jesus isn't finished. Avoiding outward sin is important, but sin starts in the heart. That's where the root is, and so it has to be torn up by the root. This ruler needs to see the sin that's below the surface in his life. So when he says confidently that he has kept the commandments, Jesus says in verse 22, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Is Jesus saying that everyone needs to sell up and give it all away? Is that the way to heaven? Through a life of voluntary poverty? Well, the very next chapter in Luke tells us Jesus does not require this of everybody. Luke chapter 19 tells us about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who volunteers to give away half of his possessions. And Jesus does not pull him up and tell him to give the other half too. So if Jesus' command here is not for everyone, why does he give the ruler this command? Simply because he sees this man's heart. Outwardly, This ruler is above reproach. He never steps out of line. But Jesus knows that he lacks a heart devoted to God. His heart is under the control of his wealth. He wants the approval of God, capital G, but his heart loves another God, small g. Unless this ruler abandons the other God in his heart, He's not ready for eternal life with the one true God. Maybe you think of sin in terms of outward behavior. Maybe you think of obedience to God in outward terms as well. Sin, then, is doing bad things. Obedience is doing good things. And to an extent, that's true. But the Bible has a far deeper view of sin and obedience. God is concerned with what he sees in the heart. That's why Psalm 51 says, God desires truth in the inner parts. 
Both the Old and New Testament agree that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That takes us way beyond don't murder and don't steal. It takes us down to look at the idols in our heart. The false gods that are stealing away our love for the true God. It might be a love of power and influence, being in control. It might be a love for human approval and praise, being well thought of. It might be a love of comfort, avoiding pressure and stress. Or maybe a love of being free from responsibility. We prize our autonomy above everything else. We're terrified of committing to anything or anyone, just in case our freedom might get restricted. Those are all little gods that can take first place in our hearts. Unless we root them up, they prevent us from loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. The particular God that was controlling this ruler was his wealth. He was looking to his money for security rather than looking to God the Lord for his security. Jesus knows that, so he tells him to be ruthless with it, to tear it out of his heart. And in this man's case, the only way to do that is to give it all away. Verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Back in chapter 12, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this ruler has shown where his heart is. It's here on earth with his wealth. He can avoid all the outward sins in the book, but he's not ready for eternal life. He's choosing his false God instead of the true God. Sure, he's sad because he can't have both gods at once, but he's still choosing the false one. Who will be saved? Those who let go of their other gods. Jesus knows the powerful hold that false gods can have on us. That's why he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's an intentionally impossible picture. The camel is the largest animal in Palestine. And the eye of a needle is about the smallest gap that was imaginable at that time. It's a ridiculous picture. And that's the point. Holding on to a false god makes it impossible to enter God's kingdom. As impossible as a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle. Verse 26. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
When you and I are in slavery to some false god in our hearts, only the power of the true God can set us free. That's the way salvation works. If we could overcome sin by our own effort, we wouldn't need a savior. Jesus died to free us from the power of sin and false gods. So when God's word confronts us with the idols in our hearts, it's pointing us back to the tax collector in the temple, back to the Middle Eastern child. We will be saved when we come to God for mercy, when we own up to our sin and long to be free from it. Jesus knew the ruler couldn't break free from his idol all by himself. But if he had come to God for mercy, God had the power to free him. But the ruler didn't want that kind of mercy. When he discovered that he couldn't have the true God and his wealth, he chose his wealth. Back in chapter 16, Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. And that's true of every false God. Reputation, power, comfort, personal autonomy, and all the other things that we can turn into our greatest treasure. There are plenty of people who find Jesus intriguing. They like a lot of what he says. They like to pick out little life lessons from Jesus' teaching. But when Jesus tells them that the true God won't share space in their hearts, when he tells them the true God insists on being their only God, they walk away sad, still holding on to their other God, whatever it is. Verse 28. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Peter is not bragging here. Back in chapter 5, Jesus called him and his partners in the fishing business, and Luke tells us they left everything and followed him. For all the disciples' failures, and there were many, many failures, for all their failures, their hearts belonged to God. Christians are not perfect people. They're forgiven people who depend on God. And Jesus reassures these disciples, no one misses out when they let God be God in their lives. No one misses out when they acknowledge their sin and their helplessness before God. Letting God be God might mean being ostracized by family. Jesus is not talking here about abandoning family. He's talking about being willing to be rejected by family. And maybe having to go without a family for the sake of following God. There is something greater than marriage and family. Don't miss out on life with God because you want marriage and family at all costs. 
Making marriage and family a god is what leads professing Christians to marry unbelievers. Jesus says, whatever you give up in order for God to be God in your life, you never miss out. You're never shortchanged. Not in the life to come, and not in this life either. Sometimes we give the impression following God is about being miserable now, so we can be blessed and happy later. But that's not what Jesus says. Yes, we have an eternal future to look forward to. Yes, we should always have that future in our minds. But God's people are blessed now too. In the context here, it seems Jesus is talking about the blessing of Christian fellowship. We may miss out on one kind of family when we let God be God in our lives, but we become part of a family that's even greater and richer, the family of God. Who will be saved? Those who admit their sinfulness and their helplessness. Those who turn from false gods and cry for mercy from the true God. We're going to close with a song reminding us what it cost God to show us mercy. It cost him the death of his son. The song is, I will sing of the Lamb.